0: Of you, welcome to Matthias' Lot. If tonight is your first time here, what's up? Good to see you, buddy. If tonight's your first time here, thanks so much for being here. Um, I want to remind each of us, I grew up in the church uh, pretty much from uh, conception, my, uh, you know, beginning in the womb, till now I've been in the church growing up, and the, the church um, service typically has a rhythm, has a meter. And I think because of the rhythm and because of the meter, we oftentimes just go with the rhythm and the meter, missing, like, what we're doing. We just do the deal, stand up, sit down, sing the song. And at this time, we all know, like, what happens. We open the Word, and we're going to be studying the Scriptures, right? But but we miss what it is that we're really doing. And so I want to remind us before we get going tonight what it is that we're doing. We're not just opening the Word of God. And and myself and Jason and Jeff and whoever teaches up here, we're not performers, We're not comedians. We're not up here trying to draw a crowd in by our cool antics. This moment in time in our worship gathering is a moment for us to open up God's holy word, which we believe here at Matthias' Lot is inerrant, that God breathed it, that He spoke it, that it's a good book, and the Scripture says it never returns back void. We believe that, and so as speakers and communicators and teachers, Jason and I believe that we can get out of the way and let God do His thing through His Word primarily. And so what's about to happen, if you're here for the first time, is we're going to open, and we're going to pray that the Spirit of God will show us more of who God is. That He'll reveal more of His character that will walk away and walk through those double doors saying tonight I got a greater glimpse of who it is that Yahweh, Yad, Hed, Vod, Haid, the Old Testament name for God, who that guy, that God, that holy majesty image is so that we may better love Him, so that we may better walk out of here by God's Spirit convicted and changed. Are you with me? So that's what we're doing. We're not just doing a church rhythm exercise. This isn't, and now's the time when we read God's Word. No, no, no. We're going through the Scriptures because we desire to know who God is better. And we're asking Him to change our hearts, to move us and to shake us. So, shall we dance? Remember that from a few weeks ago? I would say, shall we dance? And you all say, we shall. Let's try it again. Shall we dance? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, seventh grade uh, uh, dance style. You know what I'm saying? Now, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me how people respond to surprises differently. Um, how many of you guys here like surprise parties? Alright? Yeah. Some of you guys love them. I mean, when, when someone doesn't throw you a surprise birthday party, you get angry. You know, and I mean, you, you you love it, you crave it, you love the surprise. Others of you guys are haters, right? How many of you guys hate surprise parties? Any, Yeah. Yeah, you guys are the people you just like things neat, like you want to know what's going on. If any little glitch comes in your schedule, you're I mean you back away, right? Those are those are you people. Some of you guys love getting little surprise trinkets, right? Like in your marriage, you know, you love getting that little surprise little present, you know, from your wife or your husband, a little note. Right. Uh, Others of you guys like you hate that kind of stuff because you, again, you just want everything ordered, you know, and when someone does something to surprise you, you know, you're like, what are you doing? You know, we respond very differently to surprises, much like the people who were responding to Jesus, because let me tell you something. He was a surprise. If people would have read the scriptures properly, they wouldn't have been such a surprise. But he was. He came on the scene and he wasn't what people were expecting. They had created their own image of who God would look like, what He would say, how He would articulate, and most importantly, who He would love. And if you've been with us through the Gospel of Luke, what you're seeing is that He is surprising everyone with the words that He says, the people that He loves, the way He articulates, and most importantly, even just His appearance, how He's not taking out the Romans. And so we've seen people responding in those same two camps Some people have embraced the surprise. Some people have been like, yes, this this surprise is, is awesome. I'm so thankful that you do love the oppressed. I'm so thankful that you do care for the widow. I'm so thankful that you're engaging those who are unlovable by culture. And other people, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't the God that I had in mind. And so because you're not the God that I had created in my mind, how preposterous does that sound? Because you're not the God that I had finangled in my dome, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with you. Friends, tonight, time is shrinking. We've been studying Jesus and over the last several chapters, it's spanned a couple years. We've been watching Him heal. We've been watching Him preach and teach. We've seen amazing miracles. We've seen Jesus speak the very words of God, being God. We've seen disciples trained all over the span of a couple of years. But now, time is about to shrink. And He is in His... Uh, how many of you guys have ever been on a plane? Yeah. Okay. I mean, some of you are lying. And others of you need to get out more, right? You know, plane, woo, you know, yeah. One of my favorite things in a plane, because it means you're getting close to home, is when the captain comes on the intercom and he's like, "Uh, flight attendants, you know, used to be stewardesses, now we have to be PC, you know, politically correct. flight attendants, please prepare for the final descent into St. Louis. I love those words, right? Because it means, despite my motion sickness, like we're getting close to home, you know? And and here, we're in Jesus' final approach, his final descent into Jerusalem. And we all know what's going to happen there. He is headed there to die. There's commotion, people are going there because it's Passover time, and time now moves from a couple of years to the next several chapters are going to be the study of a few weeks, a few months, the last days of Jesus. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We've been going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke for a long time and as we enter into this section, this is this is the great reason why Christ came. The beauty of God's plan. And so let's begin in uh, verse 31 of Luke chapter 18. Are you all there? Say, I'm there. Sweet. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them. The twelve, right? The disciples. He's been pouring into them. He spent so many waking minutes with these guys. And I love this. I love the rhetoric here. He takes them what? Aside. That means this moment, despite the crowd, the entourage that's following Jesus, this moment is meant just for the disciples. This teaching moment, this moment where He's going to speak, is meant just for these twelve. So He takes them, like, I don't know, like around the corner, right? Or, uh, you know, up, up the hill somewhere. He gets them alone. He takes them aside. And then He says this. We are going up to Jerusalem. Which the disciples would have been like, Of course we are. (laughs) We've been traveling there for a long time. Like, we know it because it's Passover time. That's what we do, Jesus. We go to Jerusalem. There's no surprises at this point. Yes, of course we're headed there, right? We're going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. God keeps His promises. If you've been with us, you know that when we talk about the Old Testament... The prophets. We talk about it in a way that every word that God breathed through the prophets and through Moses and the Pentateuch and the other pieces of the Old Testament are all pointing to one thing, the person and work of Jesus. And so Jesus takes these guys aside and says, everything that was written about the Son of Man is about ready to be fulfilled. Verse 32. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. Could you imagine that moment? Hearing these words. This is the third time that Luke has talked about Jesus talking about His death. Put up Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 for me. But He was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Jesus keeps referring to the fact that He will suffer. This written hundreds of years before Jesus even came on the scene. How many guys like movies? Yeah, like all of us, right? How many of you guys have seen the wretched movie Titanic? Any of you guys ever seen that? Yeah, yeah. There's like this, the, the piece of the movie that we all know, like the boat's going to sink, Right? death, despair, destruction, horrible, right? And then there's this other piece of the story, Jack and Rose. And they're kind of, you know, like, you know, there's this scene and they're holding each other in the boat, you know, it's all this classic movie moments, you know, and my heart will go on, the beautiful song. A movie like that, a blockbuster, I I think, isn't it the biggest grossing movie ever? Yeah, like that and Hoosiers, you know, yeah. You know, it, it has a few expected things. A movie like that is based upon what? The plot. The tension. The times when betrayal and, and distress come into play. And the tension rises. And the plot comes forth. And that's when all of us are like sitting on the edge of our seats. Maybe not in Titanic, right? But, but in, in another movie, like we come to the edge of our seats and we're just like, what's going to happen? Well, The plot just drives everything. No one expected Jesus to die as the Messiah. I'm just going to be honest with you. When Jesus came on the scene, He started telling people, I'm the Son of God. No one was understanding the fact that He was headed to Jerusalem to die. But friends, can I tell you something? Isaiah and the hundreds of prophecies that spoke about the death of Jesus. Can I share something with you tonight? In this moment when Jesus speaks. In this moment when He looks back at the prophets and said, Every word will be fulfilled. In a movie, like the plot is the tension, and, and we begin to ask ourselves one question. Like, what went wrong? Like, why did they betray? And why was there a traitor? And, and what's happening here? In the story of Jesus, nothing went wrong. Not a single aspect went wrong. Betrayal. We would be like, like, what, like, what is that? In, Matthew, in Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus said that He would be betrayed into the hands of men. He said in Matthew that He would be given up to the high priest, which He was. And in this case, what does it say? It brings in the Gentiles, or who? The Romans. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Which tells each of us that in the death of Christ, the flesh ripping, the flogging, the insults, the spitting, listen, Can you imagine being the one who spat in the face of God? Could you imagine that? None of it went wrong. Not a single bit of it. And with a greater perspective that you and I have, being able to step back from the scriptures and see them holistically, we see them as God's great plan. But I tell you what, what the disciples didn't understand in this moment, they will later. And what they will understand later, they will know that nothing went wrong. That it was the design of God to send Christ to suffer and to be our sacrificial lamb so that we could be reconnected with God. In this moment, this escalates the blood dripping down his face in a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's going to suffer and he knows it's God's plan and somehow he knows it's beautiful. Do you? Do we step back and watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ and we hurt and we cry and at the end of the day we say, God, thank you for your plan. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you that none of that went wrong. Betrayal, traitor, death, insults, all of it fulfilled in the person of Christ. Jesus goes on. And I, this, is, this is so interesting to me. On the third day, He will rise again. He said that He would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. He keeps making reference to the fact that, yes, the Son of Man will, all of this will happen And that he'll rise again on the third day. It's one thing to stop at his death and say nothing went wrong. It's another thing to say, and he will rise on the third day and say nothing went wrong. Can I get an amen, please? Yeah. Can you wake up church, right? Like, he rose on the third day and praise God that didn't go wrong. It was the plan from the beginning. It happened. It's real. And because of the resurrection of Christ, you and I can be reconnected with Yod Haid, Vod, Hey, the word that the Israelites wouldn't even say because it held so much power. But it was hidden from the disciples. Scripture says, look at this verse. The disciples did not understand any of this. And this cracks me up. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. It's like saying the the same thing three times. It's like they didn't understand and they didn't understand and they didn't understand, you know? With like some weird wordage around there. They didn't get it, alright? Let me exegete it for you, alright? They didn't understand it. It was hidden from them. They didn't grasp it in that moment. But listen, I guarantee you, when Peter, and we talk about this all the time, was crucified upside down, and when he said, I don't want to die like my Savior, I guarantee you in that moment he got it. As the Holy Spirit unveiled and took off the the scales of the disciples' eyes and they realized this is exactly what Jesus came to do, I guarantee you, that what they continue to take and and teach and preach and let their heart overflow was the great plan of God. So the question begs each of us. You've had some bad things happen, haven't you? You lost your job. Money just went down the yapper. You had a death in your family that you didn't understand, you couldn't begin to grasp. You had a relationship that just tension, tension. Friends, we're so quick to blame circumstances, aren't we? We're so quick to step back and say, God, what are you doing wrong? And we're so quick. Isn't this interesting? We're so quick to say, what are we doing wrong? Like His plan somehow like revolves around us. He's using us for His glory's sake. But let me tell you this, He will accomplish His plan with or without us. And isn't that beautiful? And so when you and I When we begin to step back and say, God, thank you for your plan amidst the struggle, amidst the hurt, amidst the trial, then our communion with Christ will go to this level that the disciples saw post-resurrection. God, your plan. Remember Jesus? What did he pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? If there's any other way. But what? But your will be done. And so he suffers and he goes through it. Hey, church, it's time to wake up. It's time to cry out for God, to renew our passion for claiming victory in His great plan. He never does anything wrong. He's great and faithful despite our faithlessness, and He will accomplish what's impossible for man, making it completely possible for God. And that's what you and I can rest in. That's what you and I can sit back and say, you know what? You're in control. You're doing your work. And if it means that for a little bit I have to suffer, then so be it. Because this world is but a mist, this life but a mist in comparison to an eternity spent at the foot of your throne, worshiping the Creator. And now, friends, he goes in to another journey. One of my favorite stories in the Scriptures. When I was 19 years old, can you guys picture me at 19? I was a crazy lunatic. Okay, 19 years old, had no hair. I was bald. Thought that was cool. Bad idea. All right. Kind of going. Kind of nothing against anyone who's bald here. Right? Yeah. But, dude, I I, I love you, bro. And, you know, I have a receding hairline. Um, But I was starting to preach at a lot of camps. And this next story was the story that actually was the formational story of this entire week-long camp. It's one of my favorites. And so let's uh, continue on here tonight. Excited about this verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho... That should ring a bell for some of you guys, right? Old Testament Jericho, famous a place. We'll talk more about it next week. He approaches Jericho, which is on the path towards Jerusalem. There's probably at this point two Jerichos. The Old Testament Jericho, which was destroyed, okay, in the Old Testament. And a new Jericho, which Herod has rebuilt. But he's approaching a Jericho. Let me kind of do a map for you. Like this. Okay, Dead Sea, you guys with me here? Here's Jericho about six miles to the north and to the west. And Jerusalem is just a few miles to the south. And so it's all very close proximity. Were you guys with me there? I wish I had an Etch-A-Sketch or something. He's approaching Jericho. And a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. This blind man, Mark, calls Bartimaeus. Everyone say Bartimaeus. Yeah, we'll call him Bart for our purposes, okay, once in a while. He's sitting by a roadside begging. I'm not sure if any of you guys have ever journeyed or been in a relationship with individuals who cannot see. No color. Black. Never see faces. Children. Never know what it looks like to embrace someone. They have a heightened sense, and I was just doing some research Reading some testimonies from individuals who are blind, a heightened sense of of touch, heightened sense of hearing. But it's it's a difficult disease. And it was all throughout the scriptures. Blindness uh, was a major uh, Old Testament, a New Testament, ancient uh, Jewish um, issue, disease. It was rampant. Jesus, so far, we've seen five or so healings of blind people. It's interesting uh, to note that, that Jesus comes in Luke chapter 4 and says what? I've come to set the captives free and to recover the sight of the blind. So the blind in Jesus, the oppressed in Jesus are one and one. This guy is sitting on the side of the road with his hand out, maybe a cup, and he's begging. Why? Because he has to. No one's helping him. He's sitting there on the side of the road with, with, with no help. Maybe no family. Maybe his family said no dice. Maybe they helped him for a while, but now they're not anymore. Whatever the case is, this guy is the blind beggar. Helpless, hopeless, sitting on the side of the road. Verse 36. When he heard the crowd going by, right? And there was a crowd. Jesus and his peeps, right? Jesus and the entourage. They're headed where? They're headed to Jerusalem, and other people are going to jerusalem for passover as well and so there's a crowd there's a i mean this has become you know like the like the uh, the tango line you know i mean there's some people that are moving towards uh, jerusalem together behind the person and work of christ and when he heard the crowd going by he asked what was happening i love that so there's some people around and he's like hey 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 like what's going on i can't see them but i want to know what's happening like i hear some commotion what is it right now in this moment that's drawing people in? They told him, "Jesus of Nazareth is passing by." Apparently, in that time in that culture, the words "Jesus of Nazareth" mean something, because they don't go into a long, uh, a long description, do they? They're not like "Jesus of Nazareth," you know, the one guy who did the one thing down the road with the one dude, and it was awesome. They don't. They just say one thing. Jesus of Nazareth. Placing the location next to the name. And so apparently, these individuals were responding to Bartimaeus knowing that he would know who Jesus of Nazareth is. Remember his ministry started where? It started in Galilee, north. And ever since, Jesus has been working his way down to Jerusalem. And so the message of Jesus, who Jesus is, everything is traveling south. Making this moment in Jerusalem just be this huge political blow up that would ultimately be uncovered. Verse 38. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Do you guys catch what he says? Anyone? He says, Jesus, then what's his next words? Son of David. Whoa, 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 He's he's stepping to that, you know? In my rhetoric, right? He's going there. Son of David. What does that mean? Son of David is the claim of the Messiah. It's the word of the Messiah. If you're a Jew and you say, Son of David, it means you believe that that individual is the Son of David. Do you guys remember when Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 showed up and talked to Mary? Gabriel told Mary, Look, 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 you are going to have a son who is going to be under the throne of the son of David. Jeremiah chapter 23 says what? That from a righteous branch of David will come another. Bartimaeus, without seeing anything, without understanding anything with visual, he calls Jesus the Messiah. He shouts, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. People respond to Him. Those who led the way rebuked Him and told Him to be quiet, right? Could you imagine that moment? Blind beggar sitting on the road. And in this moment, what is their their response? What's their reaction? It's, dude, you're going to embarrass us. Like, this is Jesus coming down the road. He's a great healer, a great teacher, Will you please shut your trap hole so that we can just encounter Christ right now? Be quiet. They're rebuking him. They're telling him, get away. You'll embarrass us. Could you imagine that, like, moment for this guy? Friends, this is Bartimaeus' chance. Do you understand? This is his moment. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is his moment. This is his chance. This is his interaction with the Messiah. They rebuke him and tell him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. In the Matthew account, the Greek word means scream. How many of you guys watch soccer? Don't admit to it, alright? It's a wretched sport. I'm actually just a little bit bitter because, like, when you travel overseas, you have to call football in America, Football Americano. Like, what are you, are you kidding me? You stole our name. It's football, you know? In soccer, they have this one guy who does announcing, and whenever there's a goal, you guys know what he does. I mean, it's abrasive. The guy yells. I don't even know how the guy has a voice anymore. He just yells "goal!" at the like. I imagine this moment for this guy being that abrasive, and I'm not going to emulate it right now because all of our ears, right? You're all like, "Thank you, Amen." Right? Yeah. This moment for this guy, undignified. I don't care what anyone says. I don't care about the possible embarrassment. Which, listen, if you're a blind beggar, it means where, where are you at on the totem pole? Let me let me answer it for you. You're low. And so not just is he low, but in this moment, he's risking everything. If he embarrasses those that he's around now, if he speaks up now, he's going to be lower than low. And he doesn't care. He shouts out all the more. He screams, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. And get this. This is beautiful. Verse 40, Jesus stopped. I wish there was a period and the verse changed and it could compete with Jesus wept, you know. Jesus stopped. Do you picture it? Are you guys with me? Blind beggar on the side of the road, screams at the top of his lungs. Jesus and and his entourage walking and he hears Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me and he stops. And everyone behind him stops. And everyone is watching Jesus. What is He going to do? Like, is He going to chastise this guy? Is He going to, like, go over? And guys, what I love is this guy doesn't know that Jesus isn't wearing royal robes. This guy doesn't know that Jesus doesn't have a scepter in His hands. This guy doesn't know that Jesus hasn't come and wiping out Romans all over the place. He doesn't know that. All that He's heard, all that He's learned is that this guy is the Messiah. And Jesus stops. And He says this. He orders the man to be brought to Him. In Mark's account, after He orders them, His buddies say, stand up. Cheer up. He's calling you. And in Mark's account, He throws His cloak aside. This guy's pretty excited. Possibly naked. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) We don't know if it's, a, if it's a cloak or an outer cloak or an inner cloak. All we know is that this guy in this moment doesn't care about anything except the fact that Jesus, who he believes is the Messiah, has just stopped all of his peeps and he says, come here, bring that man to me. And so he, he throws, maybe his only possession, his cloak, he throws it aside and he just runs to, he runs to Jesus. I don't know, people may be helping him. He may be stumbling over himself. The reality is he doesn't care. He's undignified. All he wants is Christ. It's hard to relate, isn't it? I wish I could relate more. I wish I could be like that blind bar guy, like me and him. We're like all exactly the same. That's a problem, wouldn't you agree, friends? Let's keep going and we'll keep challenging the problem. When he came near this verse. Verse forty one. What do you want me to do for you? You've got the Messiah. Standing in front of you. And Jesus says, I'm not sure if you know the Scriptures very well, says something He doesn't say very often, okay? He says, what do you want me to do for you? A lot of blind beggars at this point would have been like, Jesus genie, you know what I mean? Like put Jesus and you rub the little thing and, oh, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I would like three million denarii, you know what I'm saying? I'd like to, you know, run the, the, I mean, You know, all of these lists of things. He's got the attention of the Messiah. What do you want me to do for you? What would you say? Right now, if he just came down, Jesus, right here, right now. He's like, what would you like me to do for you? How would you respond? Do you know your state and your need well enough to be able to respond correctly? Or would you guys be like, well, there's been this, uh, I know the market's low, Jesus. I know you know that. There's been this house around the corner. Be sweet, it's got this basement with... How would you respond? Bart responds in a particular way. He says, "This, Lord, I want to see. You think some of the people around were disappointed? They're like hoping he would ask for fireworks and that Jesus would have like provided it. You know, like, dude, what are you doing? I just ask for something more. Like, you just want to see? Are you kidding me? But he knows his need." And his need in that moment is he wants to see Lord. Do you like that? How he calls him Lord? Lord, I want to see. And the Greek there isn't just a sir. Sir, I want to see. It's a Lord as in Lord, as in Lord Jesus, Messiah, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Now, do you guys remember a few chapters ago when we were studying the ten lepers? Jesus heals ten lepers. And you remember how many came back? I just... Told you. Yeah. How many came back? Right? Yeah. One of them came back. Do you guys remember how Jesus responded to the one leper who came back? How did he respond? He says, your faith has, in the NIV, healed you. Problem is, is the Greek word there is saizo, which literally means saved. And in this case, the exact same Greek word is used. Your faith has saved you. To see is one thing, isn't it? To have your eyes opened. We don't know whether he's been blind since birth, but all of a sudden he sees things. His eyes open and he sees colors, relationships, and it's another thing for faith, saved by grace through faith, to save us, to save him. In that moment, blind Bart, in this moment, interacting with the Messiah, he was saved. Despite the rebuke, Despite everything that was pulling back on him, verse 43, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. If I had been blind, and if I was a beggar, let me tell you that it would be difficult in that moment to not run to all my friends. And to not like, oh, like this is what you look like? Like, whoa, you know? Like I was expecting something better, you know? Or, you know, just one by one, you, you go to your family. And you're like, Dad, Mom, like, I can see now. We can interact. Like, I can, I can look at you and you can look at me. But it doesn't say that. He opens his eyes and he sees Jesus. And what does the Scripture say? It doesn't say he praised God and went on his merry way. It said he followed Jesus. Praising who? God. In his mind, in his faith, he connected who? Jesus and God. In other words, Jesus was God. This man's faith was so deeply rooted, my friends, that the last verse in that scripture says what? Other people worship God too. There are seven things right now that I see in Bartimaeus that we better understand and that we better pray for. If you guys are taking notes, put put that first slide up. The first thing that Bartimaeus has is this. Put that number one up there for me. The first thing he has is curiosity. You're like, well, that's kind of weird that you would start out with curiosity. He hears the crowd. And if you're a blind beggar, sitting in Jericho, that's let me tell you something, hot. Okay? Jericho is not, it's not Alaska by any stretch of the imagination. Jericho is hot. It's deserty. And if you're a blind man sitting out by the roadside day after day after day, holding and begging, do you understand how quick it would be just to get in the rhythm and that when crowds could go and come and you wouldn't really care, all you're doing is I need help, I want help. But he asks the, the guy standing around him, like, what's happening? And it's his curiosity, and we'll talk more about this in a little bit, it's his curiosity that allows the response of his brothers. Number two, Bartimaeus has this. He has a faith in the Messiah that I long for. What's the biblical definition of faith? Believing in something that you what? It's helpful when you can't see anyway, isn't it? He has this deep-rooted faith. He doesn't care what Jesus looks like. He doesn't care what his friends are sneering at him. It doesn't matter. He has a f- faith in the Messiah that's so deep, that's so real, that's so genuine. Number three, put this up. He has a need. Friends, this gets overlooked in this story. What, 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 is he, what does he shout out? Son of David, what? Have mercy on me. He recognizes the fact that he's a blind beggar. He recognizes the fact that unless he gets a handout... Unless someone provides something for him, he will have nothing. He knows that he has a need. He knows it very well. He knows what his need is. Have mercy on me. Number four. Jesus told the disciples, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they what? Put it on its stand so that it lights up everything in the house. This guy doesn't care about anything except Christ. He doesn't care about ridicule. He will, listen, he will not be silenced. Are you guys with me? He will not be silenced. The rebuke of his friends, he doesn't care. All he knows is, I'm desperate, I'm needy, give me Jesus. I wish we could relate. I wish that all we saw was Him. All we needed was Him. All we cried out was Him. I wish we lived in a culture where Christianity wasn't shoved over in the corner. And then we felt like we had to be silenced because if we weren't, then we would be bigots. Friends, that was never the picture of the movement of Christ. This guy is desperate for Jesus and nothing, my friends, will get in his way. Nothing. Number five. He is in this moment, has the utter undivided attention of the Messiah. Jesus stopped. What do you want me to do for you? I'm envious of that communion. Anyone else? I'm envious of that moment. What must it have been like for Bartimaeus? Looking through black and hearing... Jesus, he has the moment to interact with Christ. Number six, he has a healing. His heart's been healed. His eyes have been healed. He, because of the grace of God, has been transformed. So much so that number seven, he has a heart that is just seeking after to follow Christ. I had a need, you healed it, and now I want to follow you. Now friends, I look at this list of seven things. And I sit back. And I go one by one through them. And I, I struggle looking at the Christian church in America, looking at me and you. I struggle seeing those in us. My friends, the reality is, is there is a lot of you here who have come and you're completely complacent in your walk with Jesus. There's no life. You've lost your zeal. You look at these things and you're so far disconnected from these things. You know that you're doing the church thing, but beyond that, there's this, this complacency. Your heart feels dark. Your heart feels dead. Friends, tonight in this next moment, this is for the complacent in this room. This is for those of us who are struggling, seeing the face of Christ, despite the blindness of sin. The first thing, we're going to go one by one. The complacent heart, my friends, is rarely, if ever, curious. And as you're thinking through these, it will be a good litmus test for whether or not you're curious. For whether or not you're complacent. A complacent heart is rarely, if ever, curious. You're, You're content. The mystery of the scriptures don't mean anything to you. Um, we see this often. Jason and I always talk about it. Relationally, if you're complacent, you don't ask questions of anyone else. All you care about is yourself. And you can blame it on your personality. Curiosity and humility are combined. When you're humble, you're curious. And when you're curious, it causes you to do one thing, and that's to ask a whole bunch of questions. Jason and I are always challenging each other on this. Bro, how are you doing at asking questions? Sincerely. If we are truly curious of who God is, of what He is, then the Word of God will open to us. Then we will be hungry for it. Then we will be asking Him questions. Then in our prayer life, we'll be seeking communion with Him. A complacent heart is rarely curious. How many of you in here, you're just feeling like, man, I just lack curiosity. Could it be that your heart has just become hard? Dead. Friends, curiosity. Secondly, a complacent heart, unfortunately, has faith in a system, in an institution, in the rhythm, and not in the Messiah. A complacent heart has come to place their belief in the fact that on Wednesdays we're here, and on Sundays we go to La Family, and I know that that rhythm is just going to happen. And if I just show up, miraculous things are gonna happen, and it'll be great for my Christianity, and then the rest of the week, I just go on my merry way. This is dangerous. A complacent heart, my friends, has faith in an institution, in a system. The problem is, the institution isn't a Messiah, and the church isn't a building. And so it's so dangerous when the complacent heart, or the cultural Christianity, places their trust in something, friends, that's, that's of this world. Some of you guys have placed your faith in Matthias's Lot. Oh, they'll be here. They'll help me. We can journey through this together, and all of that's true. But let me tell you this. Without a faith and belief deeply rooted in the person of Christ, we here at Matthias's Lot have no chance. Despite Brandon and Jeremy being amazing musicians and the other crew that sings up there, that's not going to get us anywhere. The teachings of Jason and I and Jeff and whoever else and your Lot family leaders, that will get us nowhere. It will just be a good institution without Christ. He has a faith in the Messiah, deeply rooted, my friends. Thirdly, a complacent heart has forgotten their need. How else do you say it? What I love about Bart is he knows very well that he's a blind beggar and he doesn't care. Friends, we are all blind beggars. Can I tell you something? hand out, if He doesn't give, then we won't receive. A complacent heart has forgotten their need. Forgotten their need. They've forgotten their depravity. They've forgotten their wretchedness. They've forgotten their sin. They've become comfortable. You've gotten in this place in your life where you feel like, I have confidence to approach the throne of God because of all that I am. And that is a dangerous place to be and a complacent place to be, my friends. How many of you tonight have just forgotten the fact that you're a blind beggar in desperate need of the grace of God and unless he gives it, you will sit on the side of that rail begging for the rest of your life. Fourthly, the complacent heart has no sense of urgency. Blind Bart, like, knows this is his moment. Friends, are you guys with me in this? Nothing will get in his way. Nothing. How quick are we To allow culture to define for us how we speak and how we act. When will the church finally say, I don't care. Give me Christ or give me nothing. I don't want your approval or your approval or your approval. I want to know Him. Do you understand the difference that would happen in the church if that happened? Do you understand if we just said, I don't care anymore about what any of these people think about me primarily. I care about Christ and what He sees me as and hopefully that's by His grace a child of His. Desperation. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Have you guys ever heard of that? Can we really say that in the church? Have we really come to desperate times that would call for desperate measures or are we comfortable just sitting right where we're at Desperate times call for great old complacency. Let's sing kumbaya, play patty cake in the corner, and keep doing our Christian thing. Friends, how many of you just have, you're just not desperate? Fifth, he has the attention of the Messiah. A complacent heart puts God at a a distance. A complacent heart says, No, 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 God, I don't believe in your promises. I don't believe that you hear my prayers. I don't believe that we have this close communion. And what you do is you become an individual of the old covenant. What you do is you forget that Christ, on the cross, paid your debt, closing the gap between you and God. Listen, allowing you to not have to sacrifice an animal anymore or to come to the temple and pray. Allowing you... To approach the throne of God and say, God, here I am, a desperate sinner. I need you. A complacent heart puts God at a distance and forgets that God hears prayers. And forgets that God is is a personal God. And yes, we are to fear Him. And yes, we are to revere Him. But friends, through Christ, the Father becomes our Father. Sixth, a complacent heart has forgotten the fact that you're healed. You've forgotten the fact that you were needy. And you've forgotten the fact that you're healed. That he's taken your heart and he's changed it. A complacent heart has forgotten that. Completely forgotten that. You've forgotten the miraculous work that he did. Blind Bart didn't forget it. He opens his eyes and what does he do? He follows. Take me. I will follow you wherever you go. All these other and my family. I just want you. Friends, right now, some of you desperately need to be reminded of the fact that He has healed you. And some of you in here have never been healed. And let me tell you, that can only happen through Christ. And may you, if you come to Him, never forget the fact of what He does with that depraved heart. Lastly, a complacent heart is confused about who it is that we're following. A complacent heart says, I, I don't really, like I'm just confused. I don't know if I'm following culture Or if I'm following this church or this good guy over here, this life family leader. I don't know who I'm following. There was no confusion for Bartimaeus. Zero confusion. Wouldn't it be great if we just weren't confused anymore about the will of God? Let me sum it up for you. Love God, love people. We want to overcomplicate. We want to break it down in these, you know, X plus Y equals Z You know, we want to do all this crazy thematic things to try to to try to complicate it. He says the greatest commandment is love God, love people. And in this moment, Bartimaeus says, "Here is all I am." He is the epitome of Hebrews chapter twelve two. That passage says this: Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. Bartimaeus' faith had just been perfected. It had just been authored. It had just been spoken to existence. And what does he do? And how does he respond? He says, I don't care about anything else. I'm going to fix my eyes, which I can now see on you, Christ. Church, complacency must be killed. Complacency must die. The half-hearted, lackluster Christianity in America must be killed. And it can only be killed through Christ. And it can only be killed through believers who say that this book is true and that the promises are real. fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Check this out.